hypocrite. Hypocrite. A hypocrite. I am. You are. What now? Woohoo. You guys are funny. You never know what to do at the end of bumpers. Uh, do we clap now? I don't know what to do. Anyway, hey, I want to talk just for a second more about the tutoring program. For those of you who don't know, SOAR Detroit was birthed right here at Grace, and the mission statement is to teach every willing third grader on Detroit's east side to read at or above grade level. And what we get to do this summer is just a precursor to what we're going to do in the fall. Um, I would love it if we had 30, 40 people sign up to be mentors, but I want you to notice the little box there in the white. They are hiring a few mentors as well. So if you're looking to get a few hours this, this summer, um, you can talk to Amy about that at the kiosk as well. But we're hiring a few mentors, and then we also need people to give an hour a week. Um, like I said, this is a great way for you to experience it over a little bit shorter span of time so that you're ready to go in the fall and decide if it's something for you. Um, but my goal, my heart would be that we have literally hundreds and hundreds of kids showing up here two nights a week during the school year, and we are just uh, helping them to read at grade level. And I don't know if you know this, but when you teach a child to read at grade level, it changes the trajectory of their lives. So it is a way for us to do the very thing that, uh, that we were just talking about, that Allie was talking about, of just... Uh, Showing our love with actual actions and deeds. Okay? Yep. All right. That was a very non-lackluster. Okay. Better, better. Let's overwhelm the kiosk after the service. All right. We're going to look at the first chapter of First John. But before we jump into that, I want to recap where we went last week. For those of you who weren't here or just to reinforce the overarching message. And then I also want to talk before we jump into it. Uh, about the reason. Why did John write this particular letter? So let's start with the recap. Uh, last week I talked about the, the three fundamentals of Christianity that come through loud and clear in this particular book, and those three are faith, holiness, and love. These are the fundamentals. If you pick any one of these and are reading through First John, you're going to see, okay, now he's talking about faith element. You're going to see that a lot today. Now he's talking about holiness element. You're going to see that as well. Um, it's, just, it's just where he keeps going to and coming back. So in this case, when we talk about faith, what I want you to hear is that it's, well, that was pretty neat how she did that right at the right time, almost like I, magic fingers there. Anyway, faith is right understanding, right? Faith is the idea. It's not enough just to have faith. We have to have faith in the right things, right? We have, to, we have to know truth. So a lot of what John is doing is he is establishing right doctrine or right way of thinking about God. Holiness is living a life that honors God. So the idea there is, John writes, I write these things so that you will not sin because sin matters to God and holiness matters to God. So a big part of this, and as a matter of fact, the holiness factor uh, it's a high bar. None of us can actually clear that bar. That's part of the reason why we called this series Hypocrite, because none of us measure up completely. We all make mistakes. We all have sin. And that's really why we need the blood of Jesus. And then the last thing is love. And the idea of love in when you're reading through First John, every time you see the word love, it is the Greek word agape every single time. And agape is love in action. When we teach a child to read, we are doing agape love. We are moving towards a kid. So it's love and action. It's moving towards someone regardless of circumstances. It's not a warm fuzzy. It's more about service and, and, and giving our lives away on behalf of others. The best example we have of agape love is Jesus, 
who, while we were sinners, went to the cross for us. The scriptures actually say while we were his enemy, he went to the cross and died for us. So that's agape love and action. So that's the fundamentals of Christianity that we see coming out of 1 John. But I want to talk now about why he wrote this particular letter. There was a uh, group of people that, remember, this is his home church. He's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And, and there was a group of people, actually two different groups of people, who were leading people from within the church astray. And they were attacking John's authority as an apostle. So part of it was just reassuring them that he is an apostle and he is who he said he was. But the other thing is they were they were attacking the divinity and the person of Jesus himself. One of the fascinating things for me when I went through seminary to discover and started studying church history is from the very beginning of the church, from the very beginning until today, there has always been a, an assault, if you will, on the person of Jesus. Over and over, groups rise up, and, and what they try to do is, is lessen, for lack of a better word, who Jesus is or or tell us that Jesus is something that he was not. But this is from the very beginning of the church history and goes through even today. So these two groups of people have infiltrated the church. And the first group was saying that Jesus was a great man. But he was human like anyone else in this room. That he was born like anyone else in this room. That, that, that he grew up, you know, as a, from a child. That he became a man. But he was a very holy man. Like he lived a really good life. And so when he was baptized, remember this is the heresy. I'm not telling you this is truth. I'm telling you it's heresy. When he was baptized, when he came up out of water, they were teaching that the spirit of the Messiah rested upon Jesus. And so for three years, Jesus did ministry out of the spirit of the Messiah that was resting on him. But when he went to the cross and was crucified, the spirit left him and went back to heaven. So this group would deny the virgin birth, the incarnation, and the resurrection of Jesus. So that was one group of people. But then there was a, a second group of people who were teaching that Jesus wasn't a man at all. That he was an angelic figure who appeared as a man. Sort of like the angels that we see in the Old Testament that appear to patriarchs. You know, we have those stories where they're talking with them, they're sitting with them, they're even eating with them. We have angels showing up in the appearance of a man. So this group was saying that's who Jesus was. He was just an angel who appeared as a man. And what I want you to hear is in both cases, Jesus is elevated. In both cases, Jesus is a central figure to their faith. But in both cases, there is a distortion of who Jesus really is. And so in both cases, the gospel doesn't work. As what we know of the gospel, it's, it's no longer the gospel. So you can have faith, right? You can believe in something, but if your belief isn't in the right thing, then your belief has no value. The learn for us this morning is to recognize that you have an enemy of your faith. That you have an enemy that wants to devour you, the scriptures say. And the way the enemy will devour you is to get you to see Jesus as something that he is not. Right? To get you to, to think of something different. So the, the first scheme of the enemy is that you would believe nothing. That you would just be agnostic. You have no belief. Or if that doesn't work, maybe you believe everything. It doesn't really matter. Whatever you believe is fine, always are fine. It's, it's no big deal. 
right? So you can believe in everything or you can believe in nothing. That would be great. But if you are going to believe in Jesus, I can tell you, your enemy wants you to believe in a Jesus that is not the Jesus of Scripture. And he will go to extreme lengths to distort your view of who Jesus is. It's no coincidence that if you look at the world religions, Jesus is a central figure in most of them, right? If you are Mormon, Mormons would teach you that that Jesus was a great man, the greatest man that ever lived, so great, in fact, that he inherited this world because of how great he was, right? So so we have the, the Mormon view. If you're a Jehovah Witness, Jesus was a great and powerful angel, right? If you are Muslim, the Muslims would teach, and Jesus is a central figure in the Quran, that he was a a great man, that he never sinned, that he did great miracles, but he was just a man, right? If you're Hindu, Jesus is part of the 300,000 plus gods. If you're Buddhist, Jesus is one of the most enlightened humans that ever lived. So in all of these religions, Jesus gets high props, right? He's, he, he's held to a high level, but in every case, it falls short of who Jesus really is. Yes. You can believe in the person of Jesus. You can believe in the historical figure that is Jesus, and you can even elevate Jesus to a high standard. But if your faith is in the wrong Jesus, then your faith is futile. And First John knows this. So he writes a letter to his church, to his friends, to his family, and addresses the heresy of the day, and in turn, he's addressing the heresy of our day as well. One more observation I want to just make about this. Uh, well, go ahead. Grab your Bibles. Grab your journals. Turn to the first chapter of John. If you're using the Bibles under your seat, those red ones, we're on page 1021. If you're using your journals, we're on page 6. Uh, We're going to look at the first chapter in its entirety. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to keep the one under the seat as yours. Uh, If you don't have a journal yet, you can buy them for $5 in the back. encourage you to have a Bible in front of you if you're online. Thanks for joining us. Have your Bible in front of you. Take notes. Write things down. If you feel a nudge like you're learning something, write it in the margin of your Bible. Write it in your journal so that you can go back and you can remember what it is that you learned Um, But we want you to interact with the text and be a part of it. So I'm going to read 1 John chapter 1 in its entirety. So if you want to stand while I do that, that would be great. First John chapter 1. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your, our joy may be complete. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Lord, I thank you for First John. Thank you for this letter. I pray this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds to your truth. Not Doug's truth, not Pastor Doug's truth, not Grace Community Church truth, but, but the truth of your word. I pray that the truth uh, would land in fertile soil. I pray that it would be seeds. I pray that those seeds would grow and bear fruit a, a thousandfold. Our prayer this morning is a prayer that we pray every Sunday that we the people in this room, the people on this broadcast, each one of us would leave different than we came because we have interacted with the living God. Amen. Thank you that you see us. Thank you that you know each person in this room by name, that you know the, the hairs on our head, that you knit us together in our mother's womb, that you take intimate understanding and care of each person in this room. And I pray that you would speak the word they need to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can be seated. Keep your Bibles or your journals open. We're going to cover a lot of the text uh, this morning. Uh, but I want you to see the chapter uh, in one snapshot, if you will. So this is uh, chapter one of John. And what I want you to see is every one of these highlights and circles is the word we. 19 times in the first 10 verses, John uses the word we. And the question that bears asking is, who is we? Now, I know that's really terrible English, but I couldn't think of another way to write it. But it bears a point. Who is John talking about? Who is he? Who, who is the we that's included in John? And the answer to that question is, it depends. In some cases, the we that John is talking about is those who have interacted with Jesus firsthand, those who were a part of his earthly ministry, those who saw him and touched him and heard him, those who, you know, this is John writing and he laid his head on Jesus' chest in the upper room. Those are the people he's talking about in the beginning. And it's, it's the, not just the apostles, but those who had firsthand experience with Jesus. In other instances, he's talking about everyone who's ever put their faith in Jesus. So sometimes we, we are a part of the we, we. There's a lot of we's in that sentence, I get it. But anyway, if you understand, and it's important for you as you're reading to ask that question, who is he talking about now? Who is the, the we that John is talking about in this particular case? Because sometimes you're included and other times he's just talking about the witness of those who saw and ministered with Jesus. The other thing I want you to see is if you look at this opening chapter, there's something that's missing that exists in almost every other letter in the New Testament, and that's a salutation. If you look at almost all of the other letters, they start with, I, Paul, and writing to the church in Ephesus, and a lot of times even saying, this is why I'm writing. None of that exists in this letter, but it's because this is a very intimate letter. Like we talked about last week, this is John's home church. This is a letter to his friends. And the fact that there's no salutation tells us that this letter is more intimate, if you will, than if there was a salutation. Let me explain it this way. If I were going to write a letter to the church in North America, I would start with, I, Doug Kempton, pastor of Grace Community Church, writing to the church in North America, and this is why I'm writing. 
But if I was writing a letter to Meg, I probably wouldn't start with I, Doug Kempton, and writing to you, Meg, and this is why I'm writing. If, if I wrote to my kids, I wouldn't say, I, your father, am writing. I might if I was mad at him. But you get the point. If I, if I put that kind of salutation on it, then it, the letter takes on a whole different feel, right? A whole different meaning. So the fact that there's no salutation just tells us that this is father to children. This is friend to friend. And what you need to know is in that we, all the way through this first John, whenever there's a we, John includes himself in the we, whether it's the people who had firsthand experience with Jesus' earthly ministry or all those who come to believe. John is always one of the we's in first John. All right, look at the first verse of first John, and he goes straight to the heart of the heresy that we just talked about. He's addressing the need for the right doctrine. Remember, one of the three is faith in the right thing. So he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So he's telling the reader exactly who Jesus is, that which was from the beginning. So the first thing we need to know is that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is not a created being. That means he can't be a man, even a very great man, because humans have a beginning. We are part of the creation story. He can't be a great and powerful angel because angels are part of creation. They were created by God to serve God. They have a beginning. Jesus is eternal. He always was and he always will be. And that means that he is divine. He is part of the triune God. When you look at that passage, it says that which was from the beginning, and it can be a little bit confusing. It's not saying that which has a beginning. What it's saying is he was there when everything we see, everything we know, everything we, we experience about the cosmos, everything we're still learning about the cosmos, that Jesus was there and he spoke all of that into existence. He doesn't have a beginning. He is the beginning of everything we know. For all things were created through him. There's a lot of parallels to the opening of 1 John and the opening of John's gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. A lot of parallels. And one of the parallels is he uses the word logos. And the, the Greek word logos, it means reason or word or speech or revelation. But it was a it was an important word in the first century because Logos had kind of become a religion in and of itself, that people were worshiping revelation. They were worshiping enlightenment. They were worshiping knowledge, right? And so when John writes the gospel of John, he says that Jesus is the revelation, that Jesus is the word, that you don't worship revelation, you worship the one who brings all revelation. He is the speech. In First John, he's really making the case that it was the word of Jesus that spoke creation into existence. But when we get to First John, he, he takes a little bit of a different spin, and he now says that Jesus is the word of life, or the logos of life. He is the revelation of of life. He is the one who is life. He is the one who speaks life into all of us. He's not an ordinary man who lived a great life. He did lots of cool miracles. He's not an angel. He's not just a great prophet, but he is the source of life. Jesus is eternal, and he is the very source of 
life. He goes on to write in the opening verse that this eternal Jesus is the same one that we have heard, that we have seen with our eyes, that we looked upon and have touched with our hands, right? So here the we is the apostles and those who did ministry with Jesus, right? They laughed with him, they cried with him, they walked with him, they laid their head on his chest in the upper room. But the we here also includes Mary, who the, the apostles would have had conversations with him. Mary would have told about the virgin birth, and he, she would have told him about the actual birth of Jesus himself and, and all the stories we know about that. She would have told him about how Jesus was little and how she had to change his diapers and how he grew and he grew into being a man. All that to say that, that he had human form. He's not just an angel that showed up and appeared as a man. So John says in one sentence that Jesus is both eternal and Jesus is historical. That Jesus is fully God and fully man at the very same time. And here's the deal. There is no gospel without this truth. So Jesus is eternal. He's a source of life. And he is divinity wrapped in humanity. And I want to say something about this. Uh, we believe this. It takes faith to believe this. But you cannot wrap your mind completely around that. This is one of those truths about Jesus, about God, just like understanding the, the Trinity. We can talk about it. I can help you to understand things about the Trinity, but it is beyond our understanding to completely comprehend how you can be three, three persons in one God, the triune God. It's same is true. How can something be 100% divinity and 100% humanity? But that is what the scriptures teach us, and that is the proper doctrine and faith that we need to have. So John is reinforcing what he wrote in verse 1, and he says in verse 2, the life was made manifest, we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life. Don't miss this. He's saying Jesus is the eternal life, and in the same way he's saying Jesus is the giver of eternal life. Right? One way is who Jesus is, and the other is what Jesus can do, what Jesus offers. Now, for many Christians, if I were to ask you, hey, what is this eternal life thing? Most Christians, in my experience, usually talk about the afterlife. They usually talk about that the eternal life is that when you die, you get to go to heaven. Right, eternal life is that you get to spend eternity someday in Jesus' presence. You get this, this, this thing that you get to cash in at some point in time. Right? It's, like a, it's like a passport that we're all given when we say yes to Jesus. And that's not necessarily wrong. It's just not the heart or the meaning in the passage in 1 John. There's this profound moment in the Gospel of John, in John 17, uh, it's called the priestly prayer. And Jesus is praying for you and me. He's praying for his apostles and he's praying for everyone who will come to know him. He's praying for his church through all generations, right? And, and he begins to pray and he, his main topic for the entire prayer, his focus is that they would be one, that they would be united, that they would be one as you and I are one. He's saying that they would be one just like Jesus and God are one, that they would share in that unity. So he's, he's praying for unity and embedded in that prayer, Jesus says, you, you've given me the power and authority to give to all of them eternal life. 
But then in the middle of his prayer, he stops and he says these words. This is John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. Jesus said, I came to reveal the Father to you. The more you know Jesus, the more you know God. And so there's this beautiful picture. But eternal life, people, it starts now. Right? It's an invitation to know God more and more and more. And John proclaims, get this and get the correlation between the priestly pair and what John says. John proclaims this truth. Look at verse 3. He says that we want you to have eternal life so that you may have fellowship with us. When you read 1 John, you're going to see the word fellowship. You can always replace the word fellowship with unity, but it's a Greek word that has deep meaning, and it's, it's profound fellowship. It's, it's life on life. It's possessions on possessions. It's, it's me knowing your greatest needs, you knowing my greatest needs, and us coming together as a group of followers of Jesus to serve one another, to, to love each other with agape kind of love. So when you read that word fellowship, just know that this isn't about just knowing each other and shaking hands in the lobby. It's way more than just just knowing each other. It's profound unity amongst the believers within a church, right? So Jesus is, is eternal. He's the source of life. He's divinity wrapped in humanity, and he is our source of unity. So Jesus prays in John 17 that his followers would know him, and that knowledge would be a catalyst to unity, and then John writes in 1 John that knowing Jesus is the only way to actually have fellowship with one another. Faith and unity are linked together. Faith and unity are linked together. And the truth is we need one another. I know I say it all the time, but you cannot walk faithfully with Jesus in isolation. It wasn't, it's God's design that we do this thing called Christianity together and not in isolation. I think it's fascinating that John doesn't write, I write these things so that you'll be saved. Right? I write these things so that you will get your ticket punched and go to heaven. Right? He, he, and in essence, it's in there. He says, I write these things so that you will have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, which is another way of defining being saved. But get that he is pushing and, and pulling the people he's writing to to a deep level of unity and fellowship with one another. Faith and unity are paramount to the life of the church, and the two are linked together. And you can't have the kind of unity John is writing about without faith in the right Jesus and what he's offering. Unity requires faith, and faith always fosters unity. Now, I want to just give you a, a little taste of how this sometimes plays out in my own home. So when I talk about unity, uh, you could apply this to the church, but you could also apply it to a marriage. So in those seasons when Meg and I are struggling, or to say it differently, fighting, uh, <laughs> It's always, in my notes, it's capitalized, always a function of our connection to Jesus. Yes. Right? Inevitably, if we are struggling to communicate, if we are struggling to get along, one of us, usually it's me, have taken our eyes off of Jesus. Wow. Now look, I want you to hear this. We don't, 
reject truth. None of us are saying, well, that Jesus thing, it's not true anymore. None of us have walked away from the faith. We're just not staying connected in the way that we should. Another way to say it is we're not abiding in Jesus. We're not practicing the very presence of God in every aspect of our lives. And when that happens, at least for me, I always become self-centered, easily offended, highly critical, and unforgiving. Not a good formula for a marriage. True unity in marriage requires continual, life-transforming connection abiding in the vine. True unity in the church requires that we abide in Jesus. Jesus said in the vine discourse, apart from being connected to me, you can do nothing. That's pretty all-inclusive. So we abide. This idea of abiding or practicing the presence of God in in your everyday life, it's more about a, a disposition and an attitude than it is an action. And sometimes we mistake it for action. But, you know, I can do all of my spiritual rituals and not be abiding. I can read the word and not be abiding. I can even pray and not be abiding. Right? It, it's, it's really a disposition of complete desperation. That if, that if God doesn't show up, I got nothing. I can't be a great husband without Jesus. I can't be a good dad without Jesus. I can't be a good pastor without Jesus. I can't even be a good friend without Jesus. I can't be a good coworker without Jesus. I can't be a good neighbor without Jesus. And when I recognize that, then I invite Jesus into every aspect of my life and I'm abiding in him and I'm practicing the very presence of God in every aspect of my life. Abiding is total surrender. It's being fully devoted One of my favorite verses in scriptures is the eyes of the Lord look throughout the whole earth looking for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him so he can show himself strong on their behalf. I need God to show up strong in my marriage. I need God to show up strong in my parenting. I need him to show up strong as a neighbor. I need him to show up strong here at Grace as I pastor the church. There's a lot more in this chapter. John proclaims who Jesus is, that we'll have fellowship and unity Right, unity with God, unity with one another. And look at verse four. And I'm writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I think this is the most confusing word of this particular passage because it sounds like what he's saying is, if you do the right things, then my joy will be complete because I'm an apostle and I'm gonna see you doing the right things. But that's not what he's saying at all. If you go back to the original language, what he's basically saying is I write these things so that my joy, your joy, our joy as the community of believers may be complete, that we as followers of Jesus, would have complete joy. So Jesus is eternal. He's the source of life. He's divinity wrapped in humanity. He's the source of unity. And he is our source of joy. There's joy in knowing Jesus. There's joy in seeing others come to know Jesus. Right? There's joy when we have unity and fellowship in the body of Christ and in our marriages and in our homes. Two observations I want to make about joy. Uh, And I know... I know this ruffles, every time I talk about this, someone sends me an email, which I always, it's fine. Dekempton at gracewire.com, feel free. But anyway, joy means happy. The word actually means happy. Joy defined as delight, gladness, or there it is, happy. And somehow in Christendom, happy's become a bad word. Like, 
if you hear a pastor say, God doesn't care about your happiness, he's only concerned with your holiness, storm the stage. It's just not biblically correct. Now, I will give you that we chase after happiness in all the wrong places often, trying to find happiness in things that aren't going to bring happiness. I get that. But God wants you to be happy. And here's what I want you to hear. Holiness and happiness are not in competition with each other. They are inextricably linked. Your holiness, your living a life that honors God, and your joy and your happiness, they go together. They're not competing with each other. But there's a second part of this, a caveat. (laughs) Complete joy, the complete joy that we just read about, 24-7, yeah, 24 hours a day, seven days a week joy is not possible this side of eternity. We can be more happy. We can experience more joy. We can experience uh, supernatural joy amidst really difficult situations. But I want to say that because I don't want to set you up. I don't want you to leave here and be like, there must be something wrong with me. I still have lots of troubles and I have difficulties and I have things that bring me down. That's life in a fallen world. And Jesus says in this world, you're going to have some trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And the truth is the joy of the Lord is the very strength that carries you through the difficulties. So God wants you to experience life, eternal life, knowing him, knowing Jesus. God wants you to experience supernatural unity and fellowship in your home and in the church. And he wants you to have joy, to be happy. Not circumstantially, but supernaturally happy. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Jesus is light. So he's eternal, he's our source of life, he's divinity wrapped in humanity, he's our source of unity, he's our source of joy, and he is our light. Light is truth here, light is purity here, light is direction, light is is clarity. I want you to see something, the prophet Isaiah wrote about his people and in Isaiah, he writes these words, this is 520, he says, my people, they call evil good and they call good evil. They put on darkness for light and and light for darkness. He's basically saying they're they're all confused, right? They think something is light when it's actually darkness. They think this is the right thing to do when it's actually the wrong thing to do. And we are not so different. We chase after truth in all the wrong places. We chase after purity in all the wrong places. We chase, we, we, we go to all the wrong sources for the direction and for the clarity of our lives. But Jesus is our light. John says, Jesus is light. He is truth. He's purity. He's, he's our compass. He's our direction. He brings supernatural clarity to our lives. In the last part, verse 7, John makes it clear. He said, it's the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. So he's eternal. He's the source of life. He's divinity wrapped in humanity. He's our source of unity. Our source of joy is our light, and He is our only hope. First John is making it clear we all have sin. If you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. It's pretty straightforward. That's what John writes. We all have sin, and our only hope for our sin is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from that sin. We are separated from God because of our sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses us and brings us back into unity with God if we are 
faithful to confess our sin. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What you believe about Jesus matters. Your faith matters. Your ability to thrive in your relationship with God and your relationship with one another matters and, and what you believe plays a part in that. I love the fact that this morning is communion. And when here our tradition is if you've said yes to Jesus, this is for you. So it might be your first time here at Grace, that's okay. If you said yes to Jesus, we would love for you to participate with us. But I want to talk to the people in the room who maybe haven't said yes to Jesus. I just want to tell you today is the day of salvation. Today is a day where really all you need to do, I shouldn't say all, what you need to do is surrender. To recognize, look, I've made a mess. I have sinned. And I need the blood of Jesus to cleanse me from that sin. You can't clean yourself up enough to come to Jesus. It takes the blood of Jesus to do the cleansing. And it's a prayer of just saying, God, I I need you. I need Jesus in my life. I need Jesus to cleanse me. And then it's a prayer of surrender. I am yours. Do with me as you want to. I want to follow you in every way. I want that unity that Pastor Doug was talking about. Unity with you and unity with the people in my life. We're going to take communion together. And Jesus put this sacrament into place. And he said, every time you do this, I want you to remember. Remember who I am. Remember what I did. But he also wants us to remember there is a holy call to unity. Jesus knew that we had a tendency to forget. He knew that there would be strife in the church. And he said, every time you come together, remember who I am, remember what I did, and remember the holy call to unity. So before you take the elements, if you need some, just come on down and grab them. Before you take the elements, examine yourself. Where am I at odds with someone else within the body? Where am I at odds within my home? If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Just confess it. As my friend Martin always says, what do you need to leave And what do you need to take with you? It's a great way for you to pray. So we're going to give you just a minute to examine yourself because the scriptures say before you take, you should examine yourself. We're just going to give you a minute to do that and then we will take the elements together.
It was a Passover meal. And Jesus sat in the upper room with his disciples, and he knew. Don't miss this. He knew that they were going to betray him. The scriptures say, knowing everything that was before him, he knew about the whips, he knew about the cursing, he knew about the spitting, he knew about the nails. Knowing everything that was before him, he met with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He said, every time you eat it, remember me. And then he took the cup, the cup of sacrifice, Elijah's cup. Passover meal for 1,400 years had picked up his cup and celebrated someday the Messiah is going to come. But it was that cup that Jesus picked up. And he said to his disciples, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. He said, this is my blood shed for you, a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink it, remember me. Lord, help us to remember, not intellectually, but deep in our souls, your blood shed, your body broken, so that we could be one with the Father. Help us to operate in that truth. Help us to be one as you and the Father one, not just Grace Community Church, but your church. Cross denominations and all the division, help us to become one as you and the Father are one. Thank you that you are faithful and just. In Jesus' name, amen. Scriptures tell us when they had taken the meal that they sang a hymn together. So John's going to lead us in a chorus. I encourage you to stand as we sing. for you this morning before the service uh, this is what they heard that there's someone who's experiencing confusion we would love to pray over you uh, need correction I'm not sure what that means, oh connection in the body of Christ, we would love to pray that for you um, some are struggling and still kind of admired in sin, we would love to just pray for some victory in that uh, deep grief, 
uh, and someone has a right elbow uh, somewhere near their forearm that just is bothering them and they need healing, we'd love to pray for you. For any of those, if you're online, you can call the church anytime during the week. We have pastors who can meet with you and pray with you. Uh, we'd love to just meet you in that. If you need spiritual, physical, a little bit of both, there's people trained, can meet you down here. Uh, reminder to sign up to be a mentor. We would love to fill all those slots and make sure we don't have any kids on the waiting list. Also, this Tuesday, we began a new session of Tuesdays at Grace. Uh, we got the Kingdom Singles that's going to happen, which is great. You can sign up for that. But we're Okay. Perfect. And we also have uh, Going Deeper with First John with our very own Trina Brusser. So we'd love for you to be part of either of those. You can just drop in at 630. I think you need to probably sign up for the Kingdom Singles uh, as much as anything, just because they need to make sure they have enough books. But we'll make sure we have you covered for the John study, First John study. All right. Be here next week as we tackle chapter two of First John. God bless you. Yes, sir.